I think we could. I think we should stay in town. I think we should craft some more potions. Yeah. I think we should work on our scrolls. And I don't yeah. think we should go to the fucking dungeon. So that was great. Part two conversation with Mike Daisy. I'm Phaedra Casey, and I'm Eric Jensen. And welcome to uh, Bard Quest Empire. This was our part two interview with Mike Daisy. We just had such a great conversation with him the first time that we split it up into two parts. He's one of the premier monologists of his generation. He's a master storyteller, um, and he was called one of the best solo performers of his generation by none other than the New York Times. You know, it's in the tradition of Mark Twain, uh, P.T. Barnum. Spalding Gray, you've mentioned. Uh, yeah, Spalding Gray Heron, was a hero of mine. Yeah, uh, David Foster Wallace. And, you know, we really got to see his storytelling muscles in action. And also, we kind of got a little looser and talked a little bit about more gaming mechanics and his uh, experience as a DM and how he handles particularly troublesome players. It was a really good chat. Uh, stick around. You're going to have a lot of fun. I'm Phaedra Alcasey. And I'm Eric Jensen. Welcome to Bard, Bard Quest, Quest Empire. Empire. Did you ever get into like the uh, the combat games like Warhammer or anything like that? Or was that not that appealing to you? The stuff with it? the models. Did you ever play with models? I yeah. I never um, I never collected Warhammer uh, figures, but I tracked and followed like Warhammer fantasy role playing, which is a tabletop role playing game, but based in that universe uh-huh. and uh, and Warhammer 40K's role playing versions. Right. Uh, but no, I never, I never collected. Although at conventions, I've played, I've played those games at conventions. Really? I just wasn't huh. willing to like enter the world and buy the figurines. Yeah, I also them. like didn't have any money. <laughs> like I, I just to be clear, I shoplifted a tremendous number of my TSR uh, books back in the day. I believe the uh, <laughs> we're not we're not promoting that. I believe the that, statute of limitations has passed on that, so we're cool. Yeah, I, I uh, mean, uh, that, that is true. But the cool thing about D&D is, like you said, if you if you don't have, you know, all the money in the world, you can get a couple of books and just and just make an adventure out of that. Or oh, you yes. can Or you can, you know, I was, in the same way that I had to save money to buy records and I was really careful about what I bought... Um, I, I had to be the same way about D and D. Like I couldn't get every every module that came out. You know, yes. it was sort of like buying a comic book. I had to be really choosy and save for it. And to sort of your point about antisocial people playing a very social game, uh, my main access to the books was gaming clubs in my college and my high school and things like that. And that's yep. like where all the like weirdos, the freaks, that's what we, they called us, and the misfits and the outcasts and the island of broken toys. That's where we all went. And like. Somehow we got the school to give us a budget, and we bought a bunch of books and games. Well, and that's what like theater is like too. I mean, yeah, I find I find the yeah. theater is, is is you know, and it's it's a it's great because it's a noble profession and it's filled with all sorts of people who came to it with. There's there's people who had relatively happy childhoods as well, but I'd say that's the, ex- <laughs> the exception and not the rule. Um, oh, you're you know. serious. <laughs> <laughs> Um, other D and D stuff you want to talk about? I mean, that ties into what you're what you were saying. Did you mostly do theater, paper theater, or theater of the mind stuff, or did you have did you draw up maps, or did you? Oh yeah, uh, we generally throughout the course of uh, yeah, almost no uh, no miniatures and almost no drawing of maps. Wow. Occasionally, a map would be drawn, like by me, to be like to, if it was something very complicated that I couldn't somehow describe to them what they were seeing. I would right. sketch like it out. Six be like, prismatic you see rays this. and a fireball and like... Yeah, somehow very complicated yeah. uh, infrastructure in, in this particular room. I would draw it out, but almost never. Uh, wow. And I feel like um, we used to do 
I don't know if you know this from early D and D. There was a lot of mapping. Yeah, yes. I do. I remember yeah. there was a huge amount of mapping. Paper. So it was like a lot of graph describing paper. it, and then one member of the party yeah. is mapping the map as it goes. Yeah, yeah, we stopped doing that at some point just like, because yeah. no one wanted to do it well, or just because, because it wasn't like useful, or... me describing like it's one thing to describe like here's what's happening and i would describe it but to describe it well enough that that person would then make a map that looked like anything just took a lot more cognitive load right and then you know that is only really useful i think the mapping thing if you're like in a really old school 70s D D kind of universe which is where like at some point there'll be a teleport trap and then right. you'll be like, wait, our maps don't work. Like the only reason to do it is if it's going to get subverted. Otherwise it's like a tremendous amount of you, of, of someone asking me like, did, did you say 30 feet? To yeah, the east? I do that and a lot. And then I'm like, yes, Yard. 30 feet He to gives the me east. yards and for some he, reason. Like, like, so at some point. The game is in feet. Why are you so, talking to me so, in yards? I'm so sorry. <laughs> at some point, we, we made, I remember we just made this decision that like. Acres. Maybe the player, <laughs> the character is keeping a map, but we are not keeping a map. Wow. So it was like, we still had someone who was like, I'm the map keeper. And it was like, he's keeping the map. But you wouldn't necessarily make a map. But you we just... here in the real world are not literally making the map. Right. But then you could say. Too much of a pain in the ass. You could say to the DM, hey, the map keeper, can he check where? And then he yes, would show you exactly. like, that room. I, All right, cool. I, I 86 encumbrance, except when I realized that people got to 10th or 11th level, I realized you could give them a castle or you could give them a fortress or something that would be guarded that they would have to like then maintain. And then you is, could have henchmen or maybe yeah, exactly. monsters. And then also, like, there, could, there could be a place that they go, they go back to. And spells and traps. And like, then, wait a second, we're the bad guys. Well, but you're, but you're that's like. That's how that happens, In Eric. the game that you play, for example, there's a, t <laughs> there's a tavern that you guys own that's your headquarters that you can go back With to. With a ghost bartender. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so, don't give away too yeah, much. Yeah, we did encumbrance, but I always did encumbrance very, like, I just kind of, like, guesstimated yeah, encumbrance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, it was good. It was like the IRS checking on you because every once in a while it'd be like everyone calculate your encumbrance, right? And then inevitably <laughs> it'd be like everyone's carrying way too much shit. Right. That's a great everyone, way to do that. And then everyone game. would be like, ah, oh. it would just be like the IRS catching. Yeah. Everyone would be you like, and people would be trying to pull these things. They'd be like, but but my bag of holding, yeah, is totally can hold a lot more. It's like I remember there was one guy. Oh my god, this guy was always playing a thief and he was obsessed. The specific idea of cutting the heads off creatures that that had been killed and then putting the, uh, the body parts like the severed head of like an umber hulk like something you know in a portable hole he had this portable hole <laughs> and so if people are listening and don't know what a portable hole is it's basically a thing from bugs bunny where you like you put it on a surface and there's a hole now and so it, it opens on an extra dimensional space you can put stuff in it and then you can fold it up afterwards it doesn't weigh anything that's great. It also exists in the astral plane, so the stuff you put there doesn't age. Great. So this guy was just like, I'm going to sever the Umber Hulk's head and I'll put it in the portable hole. And he's like, how much room is in there? I'm like, well, it's 10 feet by 10 feet. He's like, a lot of room for heads. And so he just would put the heads of like everything. And he was always like, I'm going to cut the head off that thing. And I'd be like, that's going to take a while. He'd be like, I'm doing it. I'm doing and it. everyone else would be like, we're going to go do, you know, he's like, I'm staying here and cutting the head off. And I would describe it and be like, the icker is that? I would, be, I would make it really clear. There was some like, 
you know, social costs to being covered in like the fucking disgusting yeah. goo from whatever thing he was cutting. But he was very determined. And it was all based on people being like, why are you doing this? He wanted to do a bit. What was the bit? His bit was that, and this is true, especially in first edition, there are lots of things where they're like, if you're going to make a potion, you need to go find like the, the wings of a harpy. Like there's a lot, they're not specified what they are. Yeah, Components. Yeah, yeah. Like for making magic items or spells, yeah, they're yeah. be rare. And he was sort of like, we got him here already. Right. Maybe late. It's like basically a version of my father's he thing where he makes us go. Yeah, he's hoarding. He was hoarding. Like father heads. makes us go to um, yard sales. Yeah, it was very much like that. Um, there was no specific <laughs> thing. He was just like, and God forfend they kill a dragon because he was like. <laughs> We're gonna keep the claws. We're gonna keep. We gotta skin it because that could become scale mail. God. We gotta. He's, we gotta take. And you he, gotta. You gotta run a game where Pawn Stars or whoever basically shows up and claims his portable hole because he didn't pay enough no, on you it or something. Do any, I mean, a, a dragon is like dragging. You make something out of every part of that damn animal. And so he would just like render down the whole dragon if left alone. The rest of the team was like, dude. Yeah. Because the campaign had things going. Like they literally were supposed to be going. And doing heroic, they actually had side quests, but they had things they needed to do. But in his defense, this character in real life, the player, was a notorious ne'er do well, and he was playing a ne'er do well, a ne'er do well thief. So it kind of fit actually that this guy was just like, I don't care what's going on, I'm cutting this dragon up, and they'd all be like, oh, He found his God. hook and he Let stuck me, to it. Yeah, I respect. Really I that. admire that. I, I have a question. Uh, what What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Like either like I, I love playing the illithids. You can see my mind flare there that I sculpted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is there a particular monster that you really relish playing, or do you do you have a particular way of playing like a dragon? I mean, like what's what's your, what monster do you like to play? I don't have one only because I don't embody them. Copy so them. I don't have. Uh, other, I do have some favorite NPCs who were enemies though. Okay, how does that break down? Like what kind? Just in general, what's your what what kind of Okay, the one I can think of most was this one that was like not like the ultimate villain, but was like a perennial thorn that they couldn't get rid of, which was this person that they first just knew as as the dark one and then would later find out that and then later they found out the dark one was a, a small, very small <laughs> and uh, very good at killing and was constantly killing uh, people that they were supposed to meet with and get ahead of them, with, like was constantly figuring things out. And they eventually figured out who the Dark One was because of a terrible betrayal, because the Dark One was in their midst. <gasps> because the Dark One, due to a kind of terrible magical accident in their youth, um, is a eternal, ancient, horrible assassin who looks like an eight-year-old boy. Wow. And this eight-year-old boy is like the worst person. Like like Chucky? Dennis the Menace like was out or, around. No, like, no. He, no. I mean, <laughs> he's now in his soul. Uh -huh. He is like eight or 900 years old. Wow. He's like a vampire that's he's in the like very old. Of, uh, so the, he, they, were not, they were not friends with this kid as children or no, anything No, I mean, like they were that, friends yeah. with the kid because the kid infiltrated their group, slowly over years pretended to be their friends. They saved the kid from a disaster. The kid wasn't actually in danger and did all of it so he could kill someone they were supposed to be protecting. Wow. Because the kid is like a 900-year-old assassin. So he's like... He's in a, that's a devious NPC. Oh, no, right he's, he's awesome. horrible. And then one of them was like, uh, the person killed was like this other person's father. So oh. they were like, now I have to like hunt and kill this person. And many people came to them and were like, 
don't hunt this. Like you're gonna like this person will kill you. You can't. And they were like, I'm swearing blood vengeance, and like many many other people in the campaign sort of were like, I get that you want revenge, but like that's sometimes we can't have what we want because this this kid is gonna kill you. And basically for the rest of the campaign, this person's like central, like one of their main focuses were we've got to find this person and we got to kill them. That's amazing. And one of the things that made it amazing and interesting was I decided unless they were hired for something, they were not in the game. Copy that. In other words, they weren't like um, working for the main villain. They uh -huh. weren't showing up. Mm -hmm. you know, they were off having their own life. So sometimes they would intersect with them. And this person was so advanced and so high level and so good at their job that basically when the person who had sworn this blood oath went to like, like, like the kid was like, are you really trying? Like, you're not going to successfully kill me. I've been alive so long. And then also let them know, like, the thing that keeps me this age is because I can't change. Huh. Like, the thing that happened to me, uh, I'm stuck uh -huh. in this shape, uh -huh. but I also can't change this shape. So you can't do anything to me. Because if I could do something to myself, I wouldn't I be like an eight-year-old boy. Huh. But since I am stuck in this form, you can't kill me. You can't set me on fire. Even if you disintegrate me, I just come back like a day late. Like, you can't kill me. Wow. Where's he going to so, go? Detroit? And so they eventually have this like weird relationship where the guy keeps swearing vengeance on him. But the kid is like oddly bemused because it's so clear the person's not going to be able to kill them. Wow. So the kid, even though they're killer, they're very like this problem keeps happening where he comes after the kid. And if he's in public, the kid is an eight-year-old boy. So he really can't like beat him to death in front right. of everyone. So anyway, this is, I really like the kid. The kid That's great. great. That's, super That's a great cool. story device. Did you create him as a PC or did you create him as a, a, bi a big bad from the beginning? Or did you surprise yourself? How did that he come He was up? an NPC always. And um, it went like this. I didn't know what was the deal with the dark one. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what his deal was. And then I figured out that he was like a, a thief assassiny kind of person yeah. because of the things he was doing. And then it was around then that in a previous adventure, they had saved these orphans. <laughs> and oh, then wow. they went off and did things. So they're not like watching the orphans all the time. And really? then I was like, that's a Kaiser Soze. One of the, right yes, there, he's yeah. very much a Kaiser Soze character. That's in great. fact, this all predates Kaiser Soze. Yeah, in a way, they ripped you off. No, no, I'm, I'm about to tell you. Years, years later, when the usual suspects came out, I had two different players contact me, and they were, and like, they were like, the dark one is Kaiser Soze. Wow. And I was like, that's kind of true. That's kind of true. It's amazing. That's well, I mean, that's all, about leaning, that's all about leaning into the yes. You don't have to be a, a, a genius about your characters from but the start. Also, you can kind of you can stumble into something. What's great that's a wonderful about that opportunity. is it's a perfect example of devised storytelling, right? You did didn't have necessarily all the answers from the outset you allowed the story to happen and then you kind of inspired yourself to kind of like come to this interesting dramatic conclusion yeah yeah that's super interesting basically yeah. dramaturgy 101 also or like playwriting 101 i mean i suppose over the years as you maybe have, 201 i, don't I, know, I mean you're kind of I, I mean i don't know i i feel like again i i've, I've only been able to w watch your work uh, really i guess over the last decade but but I've, I've been in and out with it, but I can see all of it now, or a lot of it now, because it happens online. You usually work alone. Like, what's what's different about working alone and working with a group of people? I know that you mentioned that you would sort of tailor things to people, but but you're more actively telling a story with a group of people. And do you do you 
do you, when you play, do you, do you carefully cast or is it just who you fall in with or, or, you know, like what, what determines your, your choice of, of com- collaborators as a dungeon master? Anything? It's always been very, uh, open. Uh huh. Right on. Because most of it happened in, uh, childhood uh-huh. and, and like, you know, high school years. And so you're like, well, which misfits do we have to choose from? <laughs> Uh, though definitely uh, had the experience of like letting someone in uh-huh. and then realizing they're not a good fit uh-huh. and then having to excise them from the group, oh. which I think is um, an important skill to learn huh. because a bad person will destroy a group yeah, yeah. really quickly. Yeah. Um, what do you think? What is what makes that person? What makes a difficult player? Can we talk about that? Or is that I too, think that's too fine. I mean, for you, what what makes yeah, what a was that difficult collaborator? Was that? Oh, it's actually not that different than um, being well, uh, terrible at lots of other things. <laughs> like I feel like the number one thing in a bad player usually it like feels like different things going on, but it often boils down to an inability to listen. Huh. Hmm. Like because you think about it, a lot of the things that make us crazy about people when they're poorly behaved uh-huh. are because they're not listening. Like they're not listening to other people's feelings. They're not listening literally to what people are saying. They're mm-hmm. not listening to how loud they're being and how much space they're taking up. Huh. Like all those things are kind of at their root is that the person isn't really great at listening. And then, you know, the, the secondary thing probably is, uh, in my experience, people who are like bad players, um, are often suffer from some degree of insecurity. Mm. Mm. And so they don't understand the game that they're playing. Huh. Like they're they're here to do something else. Like instead of Oh, like they th- have an agenda. Yeah, but the agenda is probably like I'd like to feel better about myself, which is actually doesn't sound like such a bad agenda, but it, it's actually not the same agenda as, as I'm gonna I'd like to tell story, a story yeah. with this group of people and as a byproduct feel better about myself uh-huh. it actually is right, very right, right. different if the byproduct is first mm-hmm. and you want to feel better about yourself it's actually you know this it's not that different than like why are some people good actors and why are some people bad actors mm-hmm. and a lot of like when bad acting happens you're like you're not actually listening right now, the classic you're, you're bad actor story mm-hmm. is to be like they're literally waiting for the person's line to stop so then it can be their turn yeah like yeah. people who do that bullshit, in acting, bullshit bullshit my line my yes line. people bullshit, who do that bullshit, in bullshit. acting I know that school it's are good, bad uh, are school. are bad at playing D and D. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, me in my worst moments, I've been a I've been a bad listener, both as a D and D player and dungeon master, or a bad listener as an actor. You know, what were things that I wish I could have taken back? You know, or or work that I wish I could have like done again? You know, mm-hmm. it's always been me in a state, either as a person or a player or as an actor, where I'm just for whatever reason not in the in the in a place to listen. And I've always contended that the best dungeon masters are also good listeners. Because they're yeah. picking up on the most effective and best ideas from their players, you know. Yeah, I think a good a good DM really has to be good at listening. And I can tell you now, after twenty five years of it, that it's pretty much what you need to be a good monologuist. Huh? What are you listening to as a monologuist? What are you listening for? I mean, you talk about you do have a relationship with the audience, but are you listening culturally? Are you listening to your friends? Are you listening to how are, how are you engaging that? I mean, it's mostly listening. It's mostly like listening to the room and listening to reactions and it's listening to um, yeah, the story that you're unspooling and whether you think you have a grasp on what you're telling. I mean, that's why when we were talking earlier about editing, 
why there's so much editing on the fly is because you're reactive to what's actually happening. Huh. Mm. You're like alive in the moment making choices. So you're surprising yourself as a storyteller as yes. you go along. I mean, that's the whole reason I became a monologist was I wanted a form that would be surprising to me and the audience Where you wouldn't know the outcome necessarily every time. Correct. Huh. Like that's what I wanted. Sort of like D&D. &D. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As a performer, I, I mean, again, I've only done one one man piece, and that I admire you because you've done so many and so fearlessly. But I've only one, done one man one man piece, but it was scripted. Mm -hmm. You know, different different skill set, like different kind of rigor uh, involved yeah. in something like that. It was super well researched. Um, do you find research is important and preparation for games are important? Um, yes, you need to do a whole bunch of research so that then you can throw it away. What kind of research do you do when you're prepping for a game? What do you, what, some basic parameters that you follow? Well, I want to know, um, you, want to, you want to know what you're doing to a level of verisimilitude that you can throw it away and pretend. Mm -hmm. And that really varies. It also depends on like what areas you've, you've done a lot of work on. Like there was a period of time in my life, it's a little embarrassing because it's just so in depth. There was a period of time when I actually could walk you from the main gate through Waterdeep. <laughs> like I could, I could navigate, I could be like, just you go down. sitting down without having the book. Yeah, because yet. I know you the map. Know I know like where everything is in Waterdeep. Wow. wow. I can walk you past the main thing to the, to the, the, the little thing that has the fountain and you take a right at the fountain and go up and you go to the Blackstaff Tower. Wow. Yeah, I could like walk you through it all. Wow. So amazing. You learn that stuff so that then it isn't um reductive when you play it because you just know it so well that when you talk about it, it's you just summarize yeah. it. Right on. Right on. That's sort of the idea. It's sort of like uh when people I I've in the old days I did uh traditional plays uh -huh. too coming up. And it's like how you memorize your lines and then forgot exquisitely. Uh -huh. So that when you have them so cold, they're in your body. Right. And yeah. then you can truly forget them. And then you, in some ways, then you acting begins. Yes, exactly. Because you can't begin until you have it inside of you. Well, there's so much freedom in that. That's why I'm really into, um, you know, and again, with some people, they want to talk it out. With some people, they want to write it. But I'm really into character biographies at the beginning of the game. Like, and I usually, I may like give them a couple of things that they, that they need to adhere to because of the world that I'm designing. Mm -hmm. But um, but I leave that mostly up to my my players, and then read them and 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 use utilize the elements of their stories in the in the game that I'm doing. You know, over over time, I may add something to it. I may you know I may not hew completely to it, but I I, I dip into them so that people feel they have a vested interest in in being in the game. So I became a storyteller eventually, but my players knew that I was particular this way, like that I. Have, like to have all this verisimilitude so we used to play this game in the game all the time we had a lot a of game games. within a game oh yeah we had all kinds oh, of games boy. inside the games one of the games inside the games is what's happening over there it actually didn't have a name but it was called what's happening over there and what it is is that one of the players when nothing much is happening would be like what's happening who's sitting there? who's sitting by the door like would just ask detail questions uh, about random elements, uh -huh. so then they would listen to me tell them. Oh, like they would say, like, "Who's by the door?" And I say, "You see, uh, older man looks like uh, looks like a sea a sea traveler. He's wearing uh, dungarees. He's uh, smoking a pipe." And they're like, "I'll talk to him. What's what's his deal?" And I'd be like, 
He's a Thavi, he's a Thavian seafarer. He's on the Sea of Fallen Stars, and he has been for a long time. He has a small mercantile company that's been functioning out of Om, but he's not sure that he can keep up in the current economy. That's amazing. Did you just come up with all of that just now, or did you have? Yeah, no, now, yeah. Now, so and then, what if they decide they have a vested opportunity in helping the guy? Does that lead you to a whole new chapter? It of would, what you're yes. doing? And, do they and have, that happens sometimes. Yeah, and they knew they obsesses? were kind of fucking with me because they know that like I clearly haven't prepared anything about this guy, and then I would just like. But they wanted to watch you at sort of the top of your yes. game too, yes. which is like, interesting. And, and I feel like there's a pleasure in that too, watching. Um, someone else do a, a, a game master like you know they can't possibly have this prepped you love although if you really want to trick them and you do want to kind of trick them you uh -huh. want them to never know how much verisimilitude you do have yeah you want um, them to you think have that like a rogues gallery them. of pre-generated npcs next to you uh-huh yeah. and then every once in a while when they pull this trick you then have that character then turn out to be really important to the game yeah you uh, switch them out and later. then it makes them feel like I, we could have said anything. We don't know what's actually going to happen. Wow. Right. Wow. That's 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 wonderful. So would you pre-roll those characters ahead of time? Um, if I had some prepped ones next to me, yes, but often no. Huh. How do you deal with magic in combat and stuff? That's kind of out of left field, but I'm super interested. Were you creative with how the spells would could possibly manifest? Or did you deal with critical fails and stuff like that? Or did you... Like, how did you deal with magic in the game? In the classic, remember I played multiple games, so there are other right games, on. but we're, we're focusing on that one campaign and sort of D&D. &D. Uh -huh. yeah. So in D&D, &D, as it was played then, uh -huh. there was no uh, chance of spell failure traditionally. Okay. Unless you're a cleric and your wisdom is not very good. Now I'm being a big nerd. But a normal spellcaster has no chance of spell failure, so there's nothing to roll. Got it. So right. as a so consequence, there was no interpretation. Like, I cast a spell, spell happens. Uh -huh. yeah. Got it. Um, having said that, um, I often let spellcasters do, like, Wall of Stone does this, but what if instead of Wall, what if I shaped it to be a sphere of stone? Uh -huh. And what if I, and I'd be like, I'd, and I'd give them something to roll under. I'd be like, yeah, give me an intelligence check at minus six. Huh. Wow. You know, and then if they succeed, I'd be like, you got an irregular. And if they succeed barely, I'd be like, it's like a sphere, but it doesn't look great. But it, right. it's. It, and if they did great, I'd be like, it's, you did it. It's a sphere. That's great. I did that allowing, a lot. You're allowing um, the players the same agency that you have in the latitude of like. The yeah. Yeah. Like they could they could come They're up with just things. in the box of the rules. They're like, yeah. Now, here's a here's one. And I've seen this on the Internet and I've had players talk about it. What if. There's like heat, can heat water in a container. Someone said, "What if I can, can I heat the water in a person's body?" Yes. Is that like <laughs> how would an you, allowable? How would you rule on that? You know, it's a very on that? interesting question uh, that actually boils down in a sense. Haha! Put on boom. Hang on. Where is it? <laughs> that is pretty funny. <laughs> it, but it does actually come down to a determination about what the physics of the world are. Because, of course, if you're in a world with medieval physics, then we're made up of humors. Uh -huh. We're not made up of water and our water molecule. So, like, a human being is not water because water it's is in a pool and... and a human being is human. Right. Uh, but if you have a scientific underpinning to your worldview, then, yes, we're... Like, if everything in the world sci is... It's is like, like some worlds are world. built... Uh, so, it's the metaphysics are like, everything we know in, in our world is true. 
plus there's plus magic. magic that you right. don't know. So in that right, world, yeah. you might be able to do some kind of crazy thing where you're like heat water, but I now realize humans have water. Now I can go around <laughs> destroying all the game balance by freaking everyone out. Um, I mean, I'm but not how would playing you, that game. So I how mean, would you adjust that if that would happen to you as a DM, or would you feel like that's a game breaking thing that you just wouldn't allow? I wouldn't have to not allow it. I would just be like, beings aren't made of water. Like, what water are you targeting? And they'd be like, the water in their cells. I'd be like, you don't know what <coughs> cells are. What are you talking yes. about? Like, that's not the paradigm of any of this. Right. Does your character study science at some university that I'm not aware of that isn't here? I don't think so. You're a thief who's collecting a bunch of Umber Hulk heads in a, in a, in a portable hole. That's a this is exactly the kind of thing that that, that they, character that would have come up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, like, it's like, I know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. loved heat metal. Heat metal because, like, if you're wearing armor, that's no a really, heat metal is is a killer, a killer spell. spell. No, killer it's a fantastic spell. spell in every edition, really. Yeah, unless spell. unless you have like some heat resistance or something like that, which you know, As, th those are the like the ways that you counter it. You go suddenly this character has heat resistance if you're an NPC or, uh, yeah, or he thinks it's a tickle he thinks it's a bubble bath he's enjoying it do you do you have as a player do you have a do you have any like if you were going to play now like what kind of a character class or or or, or or race might you be drawn to oh i have no idea huh i'm so identified as a as a game master it's actually really hard for me to imagine what what character i would play that's so interesting. which probably means i should play uh -huh. somewhere mm -hmm. uh but uh but uh i actually have have no idea Oh, I do know. I do know. My favorite game to play wasn't D and D. It was Over the Edge, which okay. is a fantastic. I don't know that one. Game system that was created by um, by Jonathan Tweed again, the same guy who made Everway. And Over the Edge is all set on an island called Alamara in the middle of the Mediterranean that doesn't exist. Uh, both in our world and also in this game world, most people don't know about all. Sort of an Agrabah and situation. It's fundamentally, a game. That is like, what if someone made a William Burroughs role-playing game? Oh, that's so interesting. And so it's like a naked lunch William Burroughs role-playing game. Yes. Wow. Um, and and it's really, really fascinating and fucked up and filled with all these weird conspiracies. And you're encouraged to play. So I would, I remember I had a character who was a pizza delivery guy. Like you're encouraged to play characters that are, that are like. Normal. Drunk socialite. Like, uh -huh. all the templates are like that. Yeah. And I'm, then you're just, like, on this island having these weird adventures happening to you. Um, and so it's, it's really, really about the setting and not necessarily... It's a like, beautiful, yeah. weird, strange, William Burroughs-y setting. And then uh, that game really... It's very swingy. Uh, what do you swingy, mean by swingy? Like a role-playing game term for, like, um, the way the dice systems are set up. It capable of massive failure and massive success oh, okay, okay. and it actually sort of leans in that direction like you're very likely when you roll the dice to get a catastrophic failure or a, catastrophic or a crazy success, success. yeah so it's um, like and it's intentionally made that way so it sort of encourages this like crazy risk, almost david risk. lynchian worldview and then when you choose to do things inside of it crazy things happen around you i haven't had the pleasure yet but i've always wanted to play one of the cthulhu based games like, oh yeah I never i never i haven't played call of cthulhu or, oh, or I mean, who needs did. sleep sure <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know in the same way that that uh, uh gamma world was so interesting to me I, the the cthulhu mythos you know are are 
I've also I've never played a Lord of the Rings based game, although that so much of that now is like so sort of baked in. I don't know if, if that would necessarily is there be. a Lord of the Rings based game that's not D and D or that was came oh yeah separate? there have been like, several there's versions. been like five or six over the years. Wow, I'm interested in that. Like where the history was, came, if they're te- similar was, or separate. I have to check Wiki, but I, I I think there was some controversy for a bit of time. I think early on, one of the D&D games had Lord of the Rings characters in oh, it. Oh, early D&D had things in it. Yeah. That, that were the, very Tolkien-esque. Mm-hmm, and then they had to be stripped back. Yeah, yeah. Um, like halflings were originally called hobbits. Yeah. Right. And the right. legal department got involved. Well, yeah, I mean, somebody got a phone call. Um, uh, Not Bilbo. <laughs> um, did you get into the sp- any of the spacefaring D and D games? Like, uh, I'm trying to remember what the spacefaring. I, 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 I well, Eberron's an interesting, but that's a I think more you're thinking recent. of Spelljammer. Spelljammer, yes, yeah, that I was did. also TSR, right? Yes. What was the gaming system the same, or was it different? Yes, that was a supplemental world for 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 D&D for mm. D&D first edition. Did you find that that held storytelling as well as any sort of Dungeons and Dragons? Oh yeah, type it was world? great. It was great. And it was really lovely also to have a science fiction or, or more like a science fantasy world. Like it was interesting the the, the Spelljammer universe to put it bluntly is Dungeons and Dragons in space. And so one of the yeah. ways they do that is fundamentally spaceships are sailing vessels of different crazy fantastical shapes and they just change the physics because hmm. nobody decides what physics are. This is kind of going back to the boiling water example. It's like it's so medieval they, they, they posit in that space. in space your ship automatically creates a gravity plane through the middle of it mm-hmm. and then it holds through its gravity plane an amount of air around it. Hmm. So when I say you're in space, you're literally on the deck of a galleon flying through space that's so it's like and so then yeah like like there's no like airlocks or vacuum like that is all not part of it it's like a fantastical Hmm. fantasy space fantasy space which is great because it's sort of like asgard i mean it's kind of yeah yeah like yeah or i think of asgard and also um or like how original flash gordon movie i feel like looks like that where Uh there are islands sort of floating in Mm -hmm. weird ether and things i like that about it i I always imagine that they have fish bowls on their heads right is that that (laughs) not a thing like they can only breathe the air in the fish bowl well i love all my favorite uh, hokey space drums, usually ones uh, on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Everybody's wearing a fishbowl on yeah, top of their head. Yeah, like you know? really cheap prop, effective prop. <laughs> Although on, in Flash Gordon, they were always somehow able to breathe the atmosphere of whatever planet they were right. on or whatever. Well, it wasn't you know. about that. They never thought of, like, it was all in the spirit of suspension of disbelief in a way. They, like, went with yeah, the same and I rules also as think you're that talking about, one space of the fantasy. the delightful things is that, like, Flash Gordon's original serials were in the 20s. Uh-huh. And so it's before our modern conception of what space will be like. Right. So we right. Didn't so as a consequence, yeah. they just didn't imagine that other places you couldn't breathe. Right. Right. Um, right. And so I think that's actually quite lovely for a fantasy game. Like, there's no reason to be stuck with the science explanation, especially if the science explanation doesn't further good storytelling. Right. In terms of, like, being on your feet as a dungeon master... Do you find it helpful to talk with your players before the game about what the rules of the universe are? Do you prepare something like what? Do, how do you how do you do how do you open a first game? Like what do you do? You spend a, quite a bit of time telling people stuff, or are you more like okay, you find yourself in this room and they don't know a lot about the world to start? 
Yeah, I've done both. I feel like um, there's a couple things at play. I think that every game, unless somebody makes a really... Uh, some games I really like do this. Uh, character creation tends to be so complicated mm-hmm. that um, that by default becomes your becomes first, the session. first session. Yeah, you know, uh-huh. Star um, Wars is a little like that, or was. I'm like very that. fond. Of those same Goodman Games people have a a D and D clone, like their own version, basically mm-hmm. of D and D called a uh, uh, a Dungeon Crawl Classics uh-huh. role playing uh-huh. game. Yes, and that game uses a thing called the funnel, which I think is quite brilliant. And basically the way it work is if we were playing, everyone here was playing, there's there's like four of us here, and when you start out, you be given, you get to make them if you want, like three characters each. And they're such simple characters because they're basically villagers. Okay. Like you'd make some rolls, but like there's almost nothing for you to decide. And you'd roll in some random tables, be like, and you'd have like, this guy's a pig farmer. And then whatever your first adventure is, by the end of it, most of those people will be dead. Wow. Because they're like they're tissue squishy. paper. Yeah. And then whoever survives gets promoted to first level. And so you, that's you do character. a level zero. Yeah, they're wow. basically level zero people. And it's like a funnel adventure. And they're generally like, they, they you lose a lot of people. And based on your choices, they decide their classes or their... Yes. Their, what basically, do. as they go through it, generally the idea is like, oh, one guy brilliant. was like, you know, I was attacking already with that club we found on the island. I guess I'm a so fighter. So therefore I'm a fighter. And then, right. like, the other guy's like, I snuck around a lot, so I'll be the thief. And then, yeah. you know, you sort of make... So I, I like that as a way of... Um, That's a really organic way to create the character. It's organic and also it is tiring sometimes. Although, I, I mean, I love it as well, but but it is tiring to always have session zero. Yeah. The character-making session is like everyone being like, I'm descended from a special prince. Right. And an elven star. There's a tattoo on my arm. I don't know what it means. And you just get a little like, everyone is so fucking precious. And so it's nice because it's also, uh, I find Dungeon Crawl Classics to be very um, low class. Like when you, when you roll up the characters, it's like, I've got a shepherd, I've got yeah. a pig boy, and I've got a serving girl. You uh-huh, know what I mean? And uh-huh. then two of them die and you're like, I guess I'm the serving girl for the rest right. of the thing. Uh-huh. But she did in that one scene. Oh, you play all three characters. That's interesting. Yeah, you play all three. Like each person is given like, because you so know they're not all going to make it. So you with two or you make it out with two or has that ever happened? Is oh, you just happened? pick one. You just pick one. Okay. So I have a, I have a question about this now. Um, in, my, in my games, I don't use encumbrance a lot. Um, although I'm thinking of doing the thing that you're talking about because I learn from people as I go. But, but I also, um, I deal with death. I leave, I don't, I don't want to kill off somebody's character if it really matters to them. But if they're like kind of sick of a character or if they come up to me and say, you know, I'd really like to play a blah or whatever, like I might set out to sort of kill off their character. How do you deal with death? I I have a lot of resurrection in my worlds. Like, you know, and if somebody's really bummed out, I'll, a a wandering priest will come by and... (laughs) You know, um, or the or the body can be delivered to a town. How do you he deal? He won't with, have been dead. He'll have how do you deal, bad amnesia. Well, how, yeah, how do you deal with death and danger in your games? Do you believe that the possibility of death uh, across the board is a really good motivator for people to be uh, more careful in how they do? Yeah, things it really or? varies a lot. There are a couple different things varying. First, it varies what game you're playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if we're going to stick to D and D and sort of core D and D that we've been talking about. Um, I've gone through a lot of phases. I feel like I've done all the different kinds. I've been um, a sort of uh, a storytelling 
Dungeon Master. Like, how could characters die? Like, yeah. how could they really be in danger? Uh-huh. And um, I've also played the other side of the coin, which where is to say... Where it value to kill. Well, it's, it's where you be really brutalist about die rolls. Huh. Yeah. And in my so, experience, generally, it is better to be closer to the latter. Huh. More, more, but more... Yeah, as I got older and I played more, the more I was like, it is more effective to... to stick to the die. To The key thing here is... Uh, most people play with a DM screen. Yeah. Yes. So the real question here is, do you, do you roll fudge your die rolls behind right? the screen uh-huh. or do you roll in front of the screen? Okay. And also, do you, he rolls behind the screen. Also. Most I people do. do. Yeah. I did when yeah. I started. And over time, I found in games that have enough die rolls where it matters, I liked rolling you like outside the, of, yeah. the screen because I don't have a problem with the existence of... Uh, Bringing people back to life, uh-huh, uh-huh. depending on the game and the world, like it's harder or not as hard. That's like a separate question, but I do think it adds a lot to people's sense of victory when they understand that I, who control so much, will not be controlling what happens now, and I just roll it, huh. and then you're like, oh, it's a twenty. Yeah. I think the carrying crawler just ate his face. Wow, you know what I mean? Like wow. it adds something because you know that I can't just like miraculously it, it's caught on your helm well like, it gives no, the character you know more value or more or gives the risk more value i find that's that's yeah. the philosophy that i've experienced when i've had characters die or almost die i think it makes you like them more and want to hold on to them more to actually have the risk of losing them like that's happened a couple of times in your game yes where you've almost killed yeah them, where characters have come close to their last death save but not quite and i don't know if well, you I know, like again. Have different philosophies on fudging rolls or not behind that DM screen, and uh, and I want to be clear. I've done them both. I've yeah, played, yeah. I've totally uh, gone the fudging route, and just over time, if you're playing a game that does use a, for, a, a framework where the die rolls mean something, it adds a lot of suspense. Yeah, to know the way you're describing that creates they really a lot mean of tension. Something. Yeah, and if you're seeing it, and if you're seeing it play out in front of you, I would get it's like it's like watching a football game, right? It's not not like watching a theater piece where like okay, you know everyone dies in the end in Hamlet, but like if you're watching a football game, you don't know if you know the Steelers beat the Giants or vice uh-huh, versa, right. right? It's like how is the die going to get cast? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, no, your it's thought, okay. but yeah. And also a thing that influences it is early D and D is much more lethal yeah. than later D&D. Huh. Like much, much more lethal. And so um, this sounds like, therefore, you would think you'd fudge more in early D&D. Uh-huh. But what happens is you just learn to not be that attached to any particular character. Right. If you can. It also teaches people to be wary. Huh. In, yeah. If you might imagine in a world where I I like described that assassin doing that thing. Uh-huh. In a world like that, my players, if they had a problem, the problem was left their own devices. If there was no other reason, they would never leave town Uh because they will constantly be preparing because they know how brutal the world is. So they're always like, I think we could, I think we should stay in town. I think we should craft some more potions. I think we should work on our scrolls. And I don't think we should go to the fucking dungeon because they're like people will die horrible right. things will happen maybe we'll get some treasure but definitely 
somebody's somebody's gonna die. die. And so people would get very, especially as they succeeded over time and they gained levels. This did not make them feel like now I've got because they would people would still die. Sure, things would get very. They if they get attached to their character, they get really combat averse yeah it's when when this group has gotten to higher levels we've been playing the game same game for like two or three years two and a half years i guess and and i read a, a piece of advice somewhere from a dungeon master is like when you get to 17th 18th 19th level, you're, you're basically like the avengers the group of adventurers you're on so give them avengers level threats like yes. later movie level threats it's very know? hard to challenge a group of yeah the characters well, especially yeah. when you start that brutal where do you how do you get to like where do you go at level 17 it's like fight the tarasque fight well, tiamat or tiamat yeah or, and i mean know. like even with tiamat like i i power down that beast uh, Baby a, li- tiamat. a little bit well you know i now mean coming I, to nbc i want to give them a chance no, to be able to defeat it i mean I'm, I'm informed a lot less by less by storytelling and probably more by cinema Mm-hmm. You know, I'm informed as an actor, so I become the yeah, characters yeah, yeah. and do all that stuff. But cinema really informs a lot of what I do, and so I like to try to make my pieces at points very cinematic. That doesn't mean it's not personal; like it's not always right. some epic sort of adventure that they're on. But you know, I always you always have, but good good cinema, good epic adventures always have a personal element. I mean, I think the most Dungeons and Dragons movie ever that I like that's a very low magic world is is Lady Hawk. Oh, that's a great know? movie. Yeah, it's like a really great Dungeons and Dragons style. You know what's a similar movie that feels the same way? What? Is uh, Dragon Slayer. Oh, I love Dragon... I don't know. A friend of mine cast Dragon Slayer. Oh, she was was an old school casting director that I first met in New York, Mm -hmm. and she cast that movie. And Dragon Slayer, sort of notoriously, major plot element is a guy makes a shield out of dragon scales that then resists fire, which I think is what led that fucking thief... Cutting the heads off of absolutely everything and putting them because in the fucking Because he saw it in the hole. movie. I think that was definitely one of the formative things that led that to happen. Wow. That's amazing. Without a doubt. That's amazing. How pop culture influences the game. Every week we do a... We do a, um, a di- maybe You know what? We can do this with you here. Um, every week uh, I do it because of my interest in music and Lester Bangs and stuff like that. Uh, we've been doing the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Dungeons and Dragons song of the week, which we can't play. On this, but we can put it on our Spotify playlist. Okay. Um, and so uh, last week it was uh, it was uh, "Immigrant Song" by Led Zeppelin, uh, mm-hmm. "Come from the Land of the Ice and Snow," and this week uh, uh, I actually have a friend in this movie. Uh, um, uh, is uh, the soundtrack "The Highlander"? Much of it was composed by Queen, and so this week uh, the Dun- Dungeons <clears throat> Dragon song is "Princes of the Universe." Oh yeah, that's uh, a good one. Um, good although one. one of the songs too has the the phrase uh, uh, "One vision is in there," and uh, "Don't lose your head," and it's uh, it's, uh, it's Which a is it's ironic. It's a kind of magic. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. spoilers. I got spoilers, to do, I, again, I'm not dropping a name. He's just a really good friend of mine, but I got to do a movie with uh, Clancy Brown, who okay, plays yeah. the bad guy in that, in that, in that thing. And like, we we resisted for a few days, but finally a bunch of us like piled on and we're like, okay, tell us about Highlander, <clears throat> you know? And so we were out in Australia and we had time to hang around and we got a whole talk about, he just like told us all about making Highlander. It was so cool. Well, really by the cool. way, that uh, song that the band does about Acadians is Acadian Driftwood. Acadian Driftwood. Yeah. Really? I have to re-listen so to that might, song might, now. Might put that on as a supplementary to the D&D mm, yes. playlist. Here's the thing that that sparked a huge debate and then we're planning to have an episode about it. So we were can, talking about we were talking about alignment and it was like Steve Rogers, Captain America in one corner. You've seen this meme format. It's like, you know, lawful good is someone acting 
by their own moral code and what they think is good to do good for the land. And Tony Stark is in the next panel. He's like, lawful good is someone who acts according to the laws of the land and does good using the laws of the land. And the next panel is civil war. Like, uh, And it obviously sparked a lot of debate with all of us. We were wondering where you lie on that side of the debate or how do you incorporate that or do you even think about that? One of the of questions thing? that came up was what if the law of the land is corrupt and horrible? Right. What right. If, if you're talking about like... You know, America in the eighteen or the you know early eighteen hundreds, slavery was a law. And like, yeah. if you're lawful good, are you a reformer or are you actively trying to fight slavery, or if, are you following the law and maybe you know you're participating? Yeah. What's your what's the what's but, your what, and if you have your own moral code, how do you deal with cultural moral relativism with stuff like you know? So yeah. as a, as a as a DM, how do you deal with alignment? Did it change over the years, or do you? I did. It, it did change over the years. I feel like uh, well, first I think it's always important to like go back to the roots of the game. So the game when it first was invented, and and it stayed this way in the uh, basic D and D basic expert companion, what they called the Beckme, the games that were in box sets well, that were soft covered. Those uh, were. Um, only had lawful, neutral, and chaotic. Right. No and good the evil. whole idea of alignment came from um, Michael Moorcock, who sure. wrote these books about the eternal champion. I'm, I'm familiar with Michael Moorcock, but I've only read one of his books. He, he features a, a, a main character, right? Sort yeah. of a, a, what's, who's the eternal champion? And is what this, is, well, it's the same character in all these different books and reincarnated in these different forms right. in different worlds. Okay. But fundamentally, it's like a worldview of like a multiverse. And in this multiverse, the forces of law and chaos are in opposition to one another. And law is always trying to make everything absolutely ordered. And the forces chaos. of chaos are always around. You can see this in the beginning of B2, Keep on the Borderlands, has yep. an opening sequence all about the idea that this is the Borderlands, it's the edge of the lands of law, and then over here is the lands of chaos, and that's where this thing is happening. Hmm. And it's very much reads like something from Moorcock. And Reminds so, me of Roger Zelazny too. Is that what is? Yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's very much like Zelazny is another one in the original Dungeon Master's Guide. There's Appendix N, which is like a good why Gary Gygax is a weird writer. There's so many appendixes. That there's an Appendix N, and that is his list of sources for the game. And he lists Zelazny. Like you yeah. can actually go through that list of sources and really get a sense of like where the roots of the game came from. In the world building wow. and all that. Um, we but should yeah, do a, we should do a show called made, Appendix N, just as a note. Just as when a he made note. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which we think of now as first edition, he added good and evil, uh, which right. really complexified things. Because when it was just law and chaos, it became clear that what he meant by lawful, neutral, and chaotic was, was more like these spiritual alignments. Like in the original conception of it, almost every human would be neutral. Huh. Because the only way you'd be lawful would be like if you were the Pope. You were like somehow were the so sheriff. aligned with the forces of law that you became. Not even a sheriff. You'd have to be like a spiritual. Oh. You know, like you'd have to be half. Like angel. the head of the law. Yeah. Basically. You'd have to be like, like somehow the channeling head of the Anglican Church. a tremendous amount of like energy. That's crazy. Uh, and if you were chaotic, you, you, you'd literally be aligned with the forces of demons so and, the joker like you, or not even but, but more. beyond that you'd have to be superhuman and not like a normal human so neutral was base neutral is like basically. most normal people 
And then that world tries not to even define what good and evil is. Wow. Which happens in Moorcock as well. A lot of the lawful forces do really horrible things because they don't care. So, they just care about ordering the universe. Chaos does some wonderful some things, good things, but, but also it fundamentally just cares about disordering and freedom, the universe. Maybe. When, when was Moorcock writing? When was he, um, the 70s? He was, uh, I think, earlier. I think the 60s and definitely the 70s. Um, Let's... Um... And later too, he he's like he's still alive now. Is he? He is. He's I very have, old now, but he's. Still I had alive. no idea. Yes. So where did you land in terms of? Do you still do you use so, morality in the yeah, game? Yeah, yeah. When now, I or? was when I was running that campaign, no. I used the what they call the nine point alignment right structure. What we know uh, now. What we're thinking of alignment. Good, right. Th those names: neutral good, neutral evil. Right. Yeah. I used them pretty much as they are conventionally written. Um, I had a very conventional sort of understanding of what they meant. And um, generally, I didn't have a lot of problems with like weird ethical situations because they don't actually happen. They generally just get discussed. Unless Marjorie Battlehammer is playing. No, no, I mean, they get <laughs> discussed. Like they would happen in the game like we'd stop playing. And someone would be like, you think our paladin could what if he has to torture children you right. know like we talk about this a lot <laughs> and well, don't I, you remember this stuff was also like a class uh requirement you had to be like lawful good to play a paladin yes, or you had absolutely. to be like true neutral to play a druid i remember mm -hmm. you know and being like if you fell out of alignment you couldn't use your class abilities Correct. i remember that was cool i remember that was a cool limitation i think it's great i mean i actually think if you're going to have alignment i think it's great to have things that are like if you want to be, you want to do this, you have to actually stay obey. in this you lane. You have to be yeah. this way. Maybe you can sort of settle this. We started with like a sort of spirited debate before you got here about whether Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, what their alignments would be. Sheriff of Nottingham, I I contend in my game. I'll, I'll do. The, I, you, can I just tell hit, you? Yeah, I'll just, just tell hit, you yeah, what they ahead, are. I can do that very quickly. Lawful okay. Um, um, uh, Robin Hood is almost classic chaotic, chaotic good. good, and then the Sheriff of Nottingham, lawful I'm pretty evil. sure, is neutral evil. Neutral evil, not lawful evil. Even Not though he is the law. Yeah, but he's he doesn't care about, about the law. running the country. He doesn't care about running the town. He doesn't seem... Huh. Lawful so like a for me is more, is is more uh, fascist. All right. And he's le he's more like just literally evil. Uh, so he's using he's the just, law to achieve his own ends or he's yeah, using he's, his... Yeah, he's purely self-interest. I can imagine someone making okay. an argument that he's actually chaotic evil. But I always feel like neutral evil is the evil that doesn't that get most used people. enough. Because the thing about neutral evil is you're so self-interested that you just don't even care about law and chaos. You're just like evil. Neutral evil. Now so with more like, evil. I feel like I would call. I would say that the sheriff is neutral evil, and I would definitely say I think he's literally been used when people are like trying to be, tell you what the different ones are. What they're like Robin are. Hood is chaotic good. Yeah, it's like yeah, a yeah. classic. I would say he was chaotic. But, you know, if you're thinking about, like, well, the laws of the land are evil and Robin Hood is acting in, like, the sense of nobility. Here's my take on, here's my take on Robin Hood, because in the, in the basic tale that it's told, there's several different versions of Robin Hood. Right. But in the basic tale as it's told, I mean, I'm a fan of the Errol Flynn version myself. But we I'm a fan of the, the Disney Robin Hood. The Disney uh, Robin Hood. With the fox and uh, the recasting of Baloo. In, in, in Robin Hood, there's, there's a, the, the idea of the story, of the basic story is there's a, there's a, a king that's gone away to fight in the crusade and his brother takes over as the leader. I'm, I'm right about that, right? I don't think he's a brother. I think he's Robert like a Locksley, relation. Yeah, like, like a regent. And he's a, a relation. And he's in charge just of that area. He's not in charge of the whole country. Right. Yeah. But, but, but he's, yes. he's corrupt. And Robin Hood is like, you know, I'm, I'm giving up my, my lands that belong to me and I'm going into the woods. I'm going to be an outlaw and I'm going to rob from the rich and, and give to the poor. I thought, it was, um, I thought the Kevin Costner one was that he was a crusader returning... 
there's a there i know that the main king goes in a crusade and he's gone for a long time Mm -hmm. right and lionheart right richard lionheart yeah i think so yeah Yeah. so like like how do you deal with your bbeg is it bbeg big bad evil guy guy. how do you deal with the the uh the the guy who's taken over the kingdom would he be chaotic evil because he's doing horrible things and and subjugating people and stuff like that do you like do you allow i know you can allow for a chaotic evil villain in a game uh, but do you allow chaotic evil players, or is that not a thing that you that you right? do? Is that I mean, I find generally a cha- a truly well played chaotic evil character is not workable in a group situation. Okay, like, because it's right. psychotic and demon. Because and, all and also they're literally completely self interested and aligned with evil, so they don't tend to work well with others. Huh. So it's hard right. to come up with a, a framework where like. I'm going to join with this group every week. You know what I mean? Like they, they just, they sort of sort themselves out. Uh-huh. Like what you usually get is like some player who's obsessed with wanting to play a chaotic evil character uh-huh. Uh-huh. and then tries to fabricate a reason why the character like would stay about there. Is, but then yeah. you generally, you challenge them and you're like, I don't believe, what, what is this? How is I gave, this I gave work? the, I gave the Saul to Paul example today, um, which was, which is, you know, from a kid. And I think I've got this story right too, you know, uh, ping me if I'm wrong. It's a but, little bit Judeo-Christian centric because yeah, it's like he well, was but, evil but because he wasn't Christian the before. Is, but. The, 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 the idea is, is that, that Saul is a really bad guy and he does terrible things. But and, why? What did he do? Uh, I, again, I don't know the story well enough. I think he killed like a bunch of people. He may have been a general, a general. <laughs> But what I would want to give my character at the beginning of the game this isn't is the Saul that turned into Paul. You is were, it? you were, yes, you were Saul, and you and you uh, did a horrible thing, and um, you had a dream one night or a vision or a visitation, and now the rest of the game you really want to change. You want to, you like that's the that's the role that I'm giving you in the game. That's my only participation in the creation of your character. So I think as starting place for a character, that's a very interesting journey, the journey from being oh, yeah, a terrible be, person to being a... That'd be fascinating. Yeah, right? Yeah. I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I but I wouldn't want to, I, I never have chaotic evil characters in my game for the same Yeah, the it's, same it, it's also, it's it's sort of like, like I said, it's really self-selecting. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's very hard to make any evil character work. The closest it gets to working is you can sometimes work with some lawful evil people. Right on. Because right on. they're so, they're like... Well, there used to be a restriction, like if you wanted to play a necromancer, like if you were working with the forces of the dead, you had to be evil alignment, right? Right. Like uh-huh. Things like that, like how it, or people would want to play evil campaigns just to do stuff like that. I remember, and like I don't know, how do you? I think they took away all those requirements, but how do you feel about all of that? I think it's better, worse, same. I mean, it doesn't really. It's never affected me very much because I just would not have allowed. The alignment restriction. The, no, the it wouldn't have allowed the. I mean, like the character. Yeah, the whole thing. Because uh-huh. I mean, the like the char- main character you can't play is like an assassin, mm-hmm. and I would just be like, no, you can't. There's not gonna be any assassins who are evil. Like, why would I? No, you, you can't, can't be, be a good assassin. No, so tiring. <laughs> I'm, really I'm like all there you the have others, it. all but those hitman tropes yeah we can't removed did, really did this ever it's cleared I mean, off the board i know how busy you are all the time so you just may not have time but did this did this interest in in dnd ever go into the video game realm for you phaser pays a lot more video games than i do i sort of have to i get very addicted very quickly so i have to limit that for myself for me i don't play a lot of video games although the narrative structures are very the same there's a lot of similarities between well, early I feel like and there's D- not only a lot of similarities because of like they similar narrative. taking it right out the of it people who ran the game industry 
most yeah. of the ones that I know that I know personally run the video like, game industry. moved into computer games yeah. and became the people who write the scripts. And if you look at those stories, scripts, it's basically like a tabletop yes. math. It's like, you yes. know, if you look at the numbers, the damage, the calculations, all that is like they almost have the rule book written for them by Wizards of the Coast. Or... Yeah. So a lot of a lot of people move that. Uh, I'm not a big game player uh, of computer games. Um, but I keep track of the computer game world a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I read about what's happening in gaming a lot more than I play um, because of my interest in gaming as a whole. Okay. And I have a bunch of friends who are developers at these companies and then talk to me about what's going on with their lives. Have you ever done a show on video gaming culture? At all? No, I've oh. never done a, a whole show. Wait, is that true? I think I might have done one show, but I, I actually right before the pandemic, like the year before, I was going to go to Gen Con uh -huh. and I was going to like go with some friends of mine who run a game company and I was going to like shadow their booth and like just basically be at Gen Con as like the steps wow. towards making finally making a show about gaming. And uh, I didn't because I was busy that summer uh -huh. and then there was a pandemic. Wow. Right. So that thing. now I haven't. Well, I'll be in the front row when that happens. Um, we're we're out of time, and so we have to wrap it up. We would like to thank Mike Daisy for coming over to our place for part two of his talk with BardQuest Empire. I'm Eric Jensen. I'm Phaedrell Casey. And we are your hosts. I'm, I guess I... Do we want to do our tagline, or is it hokey? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Eric Jensen. I'm Phaedra L. Casey. And thanks for joining us on BardQuest Empire. This episode's most Dungeons and Dragons and Dong. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons and Dong. This is why I've invented a new genre. That's a different, that's keep a different this. episode. Keep this. Please keep this. Dungeons this episode... and Dragons and Dong is the alternative <laughs> podcast we run. Somebody's going to make a t-shirt. About D&D sex toys. <laughs> That's terrible. The Beholder. No, it's got nine eyes. Terrible. This week's most Dungeons & Dragons song ever is It's a Kind of Magic by Queen from the soundtrack from Highlander. You can check that out on our Spotify playlist. And you can find us on Instagram at bardquest underscore empire. And on Twitter at bardquestE. BardQuest Empire is produced by Bang and Terabang and Zach Murphy. Executive produced by Jessica Blank. Theme song by Tasha Blank. Sound effects provided by Darren West. I'm Eric Jensen. I'm Fajr Al Casey. Thank you for joining us at BardQuest Bard Empire. Empire.